Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. Our guests today are Hannah McCann, a lecturer in cultural studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia, and Whitney Monaghan, an assistant lecturer in film and screen studies at Monash University, Australia. Hannah and Whitney are co-authors of the recently published textbook, Queer Theory Now. In our wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the challenge of defining queer theory, the relationship between queer and feminist theory, and think through the importance of time. Hi, Hannah, Whitney. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Hi. thanks for having us. So before we get started, since there's two of you, would you be willing to just introduce yourself so the audience can recognize your voices? Yep. So um, I'm Hannah McCann, and I work at the University of Melbourne. And I'm Whitney Monaghan, and I work at Monash University. Awesome. So it is always challenging to categorize a whole body of theory or theoretical orientation. I almost hate asking this question, and it's particularly difficult when we're talking about queer theory. But I'm wondering if you'd be willing to just get us started by giving us a short explanation of what we mean by queer theory so the listeners have a sense of what we're going to be talking about. Sure. I'll I'll get started. So this is Hannah here. I think that one of the things that we wanted to do with the book was to make queer theory not a scary thing so there's a lot of people that kind of talk about queer theory in this really vague way because it's difficult to define and then that can make it kind of inaccessible to people because they never really provide a definition and so our starting point was to say it's the very indefinability the very kind of slipperiness of this thing that is its own kind of definition and so then we tease out exactly this kind of question of indefinability in relation to identity and gender and sexuality. So that it's not just this kind of totally inaccessible concept, but we go, okay, it's this slippery thing related to gender, sexuality and identity. And it's also about kind of emphasizing slipperiness and deconstruction. And it's related to all of these kinds of other critical movements. So Whitney actually did this amazing diagram for our introduction. Do you want to talk about that? I sure can. (laughs) Um, So the diagram basically is a funnel with a bunch of buckets pouring through. The buckets include things like lesbian feminism, the gay and lesbian liberation, uh, feminist theory, and lots of different other ones. Um, And they kind of all pour through to create queer theory coming out the other end. So, I mean, one of the things that we talked about a lot in this book is kind of the activist uh, origins of queer theory. Um, and that it comes not just from kind of academia. Um, and I guess that's something for us to talk about a little later. One of the ways that I find useful to make sense of what a theory is or really what it's trying to do is to look at who are the key figures or authors. And so I guess another way to think about this is if someone asked you, you know, I'm interested in queer theory, who should I read? What would you recommend? Or is the definition just so slippery that it's hard to come up with those central figures? It's interesting because in the original pitch for this book, it was going to be based around 12 key queer theorists. And the publisher was really interested in having another kind of um, updated queer theory introduction, but they didn't want it to be organized in that way because that's not really how we do undergraduate classrooms. So we don't usually focus a whole week on a theorist. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you're in sociology, sometimes it'll be a whole week on Marx or a whole week on Durkheim or something. But, you know, trying to imagine a queer theory course with these kind of 12 
theorists was difficult for the publisher. So I think that certainly in the original pitch, there was this really strong sense of, yeah, this, this is like the queer theory canon. That is really fascinating to hear that the initial idea was to organize in those sections, because when I read the book, I don't see that at all. And it actually, it brings up another question, which is how close is that canon that you're talking about? How closely does it align with feminist theory? Because one of the tensions that you do such a good job of within the book is to show that there are these key overlaps, but there's also these key differences. So I'm wondering if you could talk that through a little bit for, for the listeners. I guess I focus a lot more on feminism in my work. So in chapter three is where we talk about the relationship between queer theory and feminism in depth, even though that's kind of part of the discussion throughout the entire book as well. And I think that when you think about it historically, looking at debates around how feminists have discussed gender and have discussed sexuality and identity, then you can see some of the tension points playing out at particular historical moments. And it's really important because these different tensions that we've had within feminisms in the West and outside of the West over different periods of time are still playing out today. And so you have these different forms of feminism kind of coexisting alongside each other and some of them are more closely aligned with queer theory than others and some of them have um, more directly informed queer theory. But I would say that nevertheless the tensions, kind of whichever sides of those debates that you fell on, have pushed the development of queer theory. So, for example, we talk about the sexuality and feminism conference that was held at Barnard in 1982 in the USA and the huge debate that erupted around sexuality and sadomasochism and pornography at that time and how that really went on to inform this huge amount of feminist writing about sexuality that became fundamental to thinking in queer theory. So what were the particular qualities of those writings? What led people down a path that eventually is what we label or call queer theory? So one of the really key things is um, Gail Rubin's essay, Thinking Sex, that people might be very familiar with, which kind of was informed by these debates very directly. And she looks at this split between anti-pornography and so-called pro-sex feminists in this historical context and looks at the kind of strange alignment of these anti-pornography feminists like Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin with the new right and with, with Christians in the USA at the time who were very um, pro-family values, very conservative, very anti-gay um, and lesbian rights. And, you know, she unpacks this kind of strange coalition between feminism and the new right and asks this question at the beginning, which is really, you know, my driving force for being someone interested in, in gender theory and queer theory. She asked this question at the beginning, you know, why is it that in times of crisis people become dangerously crazy about sexuality and so we see that we're seeing that right now you know in times of crisis we still have these culture wars we still have these attacks on um, queer people and we still have you know all of this stuff to grapple with around gender and sexuality 
Earlier, you mentioned the materialist origins of queer theory, and I'm hoping that we could talk about that a little bit more now, because really, we don't have that conversation enough when we're discussing theory. And what you do so well in the book is draw this line between the AIDS crisis and the ideas that emerged. And so would, would you be able to walk us through that history a little bit? Because as I said, that was this profound moment when I was working through the text. Yeah, I'm, I'm really so glad to hear that that was one of your takeaways, because I think that 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 was one of the contributions that we really wanted to make with this book was as we got further and further into writing it, emphasizing those material historical conditions that had informed theory and particularly activist origins. So with the chapter on AIDS, it's really unpacking all of the kind of different dynamics that unfolded around the crisis in terms of how the actual crisis itself, how AIDS itself, HIV and AIDS challenge these notions of identity. So you couldn't rely on identity as a a form through which to understand how this virus was spreading. So you um, you couldn't, you know, even though there was this right-wing attack that, that called it initially kind of gay-related immune disease or GRID and, and really tied it very strongly to the identity of gay men, Um, people on the ground in the community knew that it wasn't about how you identified. It was about who you had sex with. It was about the practices that you undertook. It was about uh, whether you were an intravenous drug user. You know, it was all of these risk factors associated with practices, associated with bodies, associated with sharing bodily fluids that was not about what you said you were, right? So, once you had to start thinking about practices, it challenged this previous identity politics from gay liberation. So you had to start thinking about safe sex. You had to start thinking about having coalitions of people that were not based solely around these narrow identity categories. And so in a way, HIV and AIDS actually broke down barriers of identity and the activism had to similarly respond And that really formed a very strong foundation for the kind of deconstruction of identity that queer theory aims for. So that seems really useful in making sense of that distinction between queer theory and feminist theory also. Because as we were talking about, there's a, there's a lot of overlapping ideas, but with that origin story, it demands this different type of engagement with uh, at least identity. Yeah, so what you start to get is this shift away from that earlier period of identity politics that was along much more discrete categorical lines and you get this emergent kind of movement of um, groups like ACT UP and then later Queer Nation, which are challenging those earlier identity alignments, but also looking at the structures that produce the violence that could see so many people die. So the silence of, say, the Reagan administration in the USA being propped up by this enforced heterosexual system that couldn't um, acknowledge the death of queer people. So you start to get these activist groups that are explicitly challenging the structures of homophobia that is underpinning this crisis. I just want to jump in here. I come from a film studies background. And so when I think about this question, I also think about how 
the AIDS crisis uh, kind of led to new forms of creative expression, um, particularly around this idea of um, rethinking the question of identity itself and the, the centrality of identity politics and kind of deconstructing that. Something really important for a movement called New Queer Cinema that kind of emerged in the early 1990s um, that saw filmmakers move away from doing things with film that were kind of focused on so-called positive representation to moving towards types of filmmaking that were more kind of deconstructive. Um, it was kind of known as homo-pomo, um, a kind of postmodern approach to engaging with these questions of identity coming off the back of kind of the AIDS crisis as well. Are there particular films in that genre or in that moment that you would recommend people see? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think one of the most important ones is actually Paris is Burning, the documentary, along with some films by Todd Haynes, so a film called Poison, which came out in 1991. And I would also point uh, to Cheryl Dunier's film, The Watermelon Woman, which is probably one of my favourites. And on that note, one of the things about the book, because of Whitney's expertise in film, we wanted to include film recommendations for each chapter. So there's a way to kind of read these theoretical overviews and then watch films that we've recommended <laughs> and kind of think about how they resonate. My favorite chapter in the book, and definitely the most challenging chapter, just to make sense of all the different arguments that were taking place, um, I believe it was the final chapter, was Temporality and Queer Utopias. That was the last chapter in the book, right? Yeah. Okay. And so I would guess that for people who are not as familiar with current debates within queer theory, uh, maybe they're familiar with the term or some of the key figures, but haven't engaged with it much, they might be surprised that time is of such a central concern to current debates. And so I know we could devote a whole podcast series just to this question, but I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be able to walk us through why temporality is so important or what we even mean by that, um, <laughs> just to kind of illustrate where the field is at and where it's going. I love this question because this was my favourite chapter to write as well. So I guess I came to this chapter and this idea of queer temporalities and sexuality enmeshed with temporality. Uh, in my PhD research, actually, I was looking at the idea of being gay as a phase and how pervasive that is through film. And as part of that, I kind of stumbled into looking at queer theory as a means of understanding how kind of individual life narratives are, I guess, constructed is the way that I'm going to think of it. The idea that we live a certain kind of life and that a good life is measured by some milestones from birth through to death, how those milestones are valorised through heteronormativity, the idea that you are born and you grow up to live a long, productive, heterosexual life and that being the best way to live life is something that queer theory has a lot to say about and to challenge because, as we know, queer lives aren't celebrated in the same way that heterosexual lives are. Yeah, I think it's interesting that people are really into this chapter. Um, I think that it says something about how we're feeling about time right now in this world that seems to be 
presenting us with a question of the future and an uncertain future. And queer theorists have so much to say about this. So it's a really, I think that it's, I hope that people can kind of find something, some solace in queer theory. So this debate, for example, not just about the kind of linear trajectory that um, Whitney was just talking about, but also this question that was actually something that also came out of the AIDS crisis, which was of future, like the possibility of, of being alive. So, you know, this debate that Lee Edelman, we go into a lot, you know, he talks about how we should reject the future, you know, his book, No Future, where he talks about the promise of tomorrow, the hope and investment in tomorrow as this extremely heteronormative structure and then, in fact, we should say no to that. We should reject that kind of future promise that enrolls us in a particular way of being, this particular conservative way of being and, in fact, we should embrace kind of death and negativity and backwardness and uh, you know, all of these things that have been kind of thrown up by something like the AIDS crisis and that we're confronted with again in, in new times of crisis. So, you know, there's a huge debate about whether Edelman's too negative, whether it's too kind of masculinist, what it says about, you know, women and reproduction and stuff like that. But that's, you know, we'd go into that a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> but there's definitely more to say. That also leads to the second part of the title, and, and what I'm thinking here is we've talked about temporality in the sense of questioning our relationship to the past and how we look backwards. Uh, we also talked about how this calls into question some of these standard models that sociologists love to produce about the life course. But there's also this idea of utopia, which is, in a sense, looking forward to what could be. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about how that relates to the argument. So I guess on one side of the debate, we have the, the anti-social thesis and the kind of anti-relational model of queer temporalities, which is what Hannah was talking about in terms of rejecting the future. On the other side, we have the optimistic, kind of more future-oriented queer theory, which says that the future is queerness's domain and that it's not enough to simply kind of reject that future. We have to see new avenues of relating new ways of thinking about identity and sexuality and question even how we can move into new models. To pick it up there, I think, you know, you have theorists like Jack Halberstam and Jose Munoz who are kind of thinking more about these future questions in a, in a slightly different ways, in a slightly different inflection. So you have someone like Munoz who's saying, that queerness is kind of always on the horizon. It's something we can strive toward, but we don't have to do it in this way that is the same, you know, what Lauren Berlant would call kind of a cruelly optimistic investment in the future. We don't have to hope in the same way that, say, the capitalist white supremacist heteropatriarchy asks us to invest in the future. We can think about the queer possibilities of the future as something to strive towards. This is a question that I'm sure you get all the time, and I am hoping that you are not sick of answering it. Um, but in preparation for this podcast, uh, as I mentioned before, I read through these chapters with a, a student in an independent study, and one of the questions she asked me was, how closely tied is sexuality to queer theory? Uh, can, you, can you separate the two or are they always connected? And I said, luckily, instead of answering the question, I will turn to two experts because I'm recording a podcast next week. So 
<laughs> so this is this is the first of two selfish questions I have. Uh, well, so I I think that you know there's there's a lot of antagonism within queer theory to say, you know, it's not about your sexual identity. So there's this huge debate that we unpack in the book around like homonormativity and queer people who are kind of living normals, you know, in, you know, commas, normal lives and therefore kind of aren't queer, right? So there's a lot of tension around this. There's a lot of debate and a lot of sense of like, just because you have your pride parade doesn't mean that's queer. And I think there's a lot of validity to that, but at the same time, you can't bracket it off so much that suddenly queer theory has nothing to do with sexuality because that's just wrong. So in terms of its history, its origins, all of the theorists that have written about queer theory, the whole drive of queer theory is around sexuality so it's around questions of sex and desire and pleasure and you know who you're having sex with and gender and and the relationship between all of those things so you can't just have this abstract theory that doesn't pay attention to all of those commitments and attachments I see it as being kind of always in tension between the kind of groundedness or um something around, I guess, having that connection and history to sexuality and to sex and to pleasure and identity and all those things that you're talking about, Hannah. Uh, but at the same time, kind of pushing against that. And I think that's that's queer theory for me, that tension. Mm, that's a good point. It does seem like there's this central quality or this thing that we return to. And I'm thinking of the very first question that I asked you where I said, could you get us started by defining what queer theory is? And you highlighted the slipperiness of the concept, the way that it evades a standard, straightforward definition. And now we're focusing on this tension that isn't resolved. So it seems like that's actually a, a positive quality of it, right? Am I understanding this yeah, correctly? That's exactly how I would see it. That's the queerness of queer theory. Mm, because if, if you totally took it away, you actually end up with something different. You end up with deconstruction or you end up with new materialism or you end up with post-humanism. You actually end up in a different theoretical site, which is connected and interrelated, but you've lost the queer of queer theory, I think. Yeah, so you end up with something like affect or feminist theory or... Yeah. Yeah, so you, you you get closer to all the things that queer theory is always in conversation with but never is. Yeah, I think so. And also paying attention to those um, histories that have informed how we've asked these questions that we're asking and why we're asking those questions because affect theory has a different genealogy. Okay, that makes perfect sense. All right, so I said that was the first of my two selfish questions. This is my, <laughs> this is the final question and perhaps the most selfish one. So I am a sociologist. I teach social theory, and I'm also inspired by a great deal of, of what we would put under that heading of queer theory. And this question's a little bit vague, but I'm wondering what advice you would have for sociologists who want to, when they're teaching things like social theory, they want to incorporate some of the ideas from queer theory, but I'm always stuck about how, I'm not sure how I go about doing this, whether it's one of those things where, oh, at the end of the semester, you throw in a week where, you know, we read Judith Butler or we read Eve Sedgwick and we talk about this idea, or is it rather that I should approach the other theorists in a different way? I don't know. I'm always, I'm always at a loss here. So I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping you could give a little bit of advice. 
I guess my approach would be not to have the week at the end that's just queer theory tacked on, but to consider queer theory as one way into or one way out of many of the other topics that you might teach in a semester. Queer theory has something to say about so many different topics that you would cover in a social theory course, um, and that can be part of the conversation throughout as opposed to Mm. something that's kind of bookended uh, as a specific now time to read Judith Butler, Rite of Passage. (laughs) Which, like, if you think about all of the kinds of things that you might talk about, so if if you're talking about gender, if you're talking about sexuality, if you're talking about the family, if you're talking about single life, if you're talking about time, if you're like, what else, what, like everything, it's kind of hard for us because we're kind of always doing queer theory in our own teaching. So it, I, I guess the question to you would be, what weeks are you doing that aren't related to queer theory? <laughs> Yeah, so you don't, it's not about assigning a particular reading. It's about in having those conversations, always, always already questioning why, what, what the definitions are and what's considered normative and not normative or why you're even teaching material that you are. Is that, is that kind of a fair way to think about what's going on? want to deconstruct yourself so much that you you just don't you're not doing a social theory course anymore yeah, exactly <laughs> but um at the same time I mean norms is a really good way into it I think if, if you want to be thinking about what is a framework that can help us question norms I think identity is a really good way into it obviously gender and sexuality if you're doing a week on feminism any of these things that have any kind of network connection to queer theory is it opportunity to bring it in and say hey there's this huge body of theory that's actually asked these questions about whether these things are fixed i hope you don't mind but i actually do have one more question and it comes up with your last answer but really relates to the conversation as a whole where one of the things i've noticed is how strong a connection there is between art and queer theory and really there's it it seems like there's much more of a connection than you find between something like sociology um, where you have lots of examples of film as you're pointing out with each chapter you've used examples of performance art or activist art and I'm wondering if you could just reflect a little bit about what that relationship is and that might be a that that will actually be my final question. So I think this is a great question um, and it comes down to the idea that queer theory isn't something for me that I would apply to art or to literature or to creative fields but I actually understand those things as being part of queer theory's sort of origin and part of the genealogy of queer theory that film and photography and creative writing and other forms of creativity are actually queer theory, not something that we would just apply to queer theory. And, like, you can think of examples, say, during the AIDS crisis, like how the relationship between the activism of, say, ACT UP was so much also about art and public performance. Um, All of the die-ins that they did were extremely theatrical. The silence equals death imagery that people might be familiar with. So this really strong relationship between artistic practices, activist methods, and the kind of theorizing that actually came out of those movements. That is a perfect place to end. Thank you again for joining us. And to all the listeners, if you're interested in these topics, if you want a much more in-depth discussion, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Queer Theory Now. So again, thank you. I appreciate the conversation. Great. Thanks Thanks. so much. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music. 
Undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project. And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.